It's a truth universally acknowledged that nobody enters into marriage thinking it will end. But for more than half of Australians, does. Big numbers. There's no rule book, no manual, and chances are you have no idea what to do, where to look for help, or how to relaunch yourself. To start over and build yourself back up again, you're listening to Divorce Story, a podcast about how to survive and hopefully thrive after separation. Well, the first week was terrible. Didn't know what to feel as a combination of being embarrassed, confused, depressed, especially because I was the unexpected one. I wasn't the one that chose to separate. My husband and I separated at the beginning of last year and it wasn't anything nasty. There was no one else for either of us. Everyone always thinks that. It was just how it went. He was quite keen to start a family and I sort of was very hesitant. And then we went to go do IVF and the doctor was pretty much like, yep, you can start tomorrow. And then I just thought, well, I don't want a baby with my husband and you know, that's an issue and something I thought I really need to address. I'm Annalise Dent. I'm a writer, broadcaster and mum of two. I haven't been through a family breakdown, but I grew up in a home going through one and I've supported family members and many girlfriends through the process, a role I would never take for granted. I'm Cass Thorburn and just over three years ago, I had to start over. I'd been with my partner for 21 years, had three children, but my relationship ended and all of a sudden I found myself a single stay-at-home mum. This show is all about starting over, but really importantly, relaunching yourself. And I think it's really cool, Cass, that you and I met just at that time that you were relaunching yourself. Absolutely. I did Dancing with the Stars and I met you through, I guess, our joint friend now, Constance Hall. Yeah. And that was just, um, it was a really cool time. And just to see, I just loved watching you from the side of stage. You were just in your moment. And okay, you weren't the best dancer there, let's be (laughs) honest. But you looked amazing. You felt amazing. And then after you got kicked off because the dancing wasn't so great, (laughs) you were then doing your Studio 10 stuff and you were doing presenting and you were just you again. And I would have never done that before. I would never have got up and danced like that ever. There is no way I I would ever have done that. And that was for me, it was choose something (laughs) (laughs) because I'm a terrible dancer. That's right. Remember, my son said you can't do that because you can't effing dance. And I went, that's going to make me do that. So I did do the show because he said that. Had I met you and you'd said it too, I probably wouldn't have done it. (laughs) (laughs) But the point is I did it because it was something so out of character for me, something that really I knew if I wanted to have the confidence to do what it was that I wanted to do with my life from that point and I decided what that was. I wanted to relaunch back into the industry that I'd been in for such a long time before I stopped working. Uh, So for me, I wanted to choose something that was a real battle and it was. It was hard and then you and I were sitting there, you know, looking after Con's son and we basically said to each other, wouldn't it be great if we did a podcast together and a year on... Here we are. Here we are. Look at this. It's so cool. And you don't know what's coming in your next chapter. And this is the great thing about stepping outside of this is a really horrible thing that's happened. Really horrible things that happened are things like, you know, people's houses burning down. And there are horrible things that happen that you don't know are coming your way. But what you do with it, and I think this is an example, us doing this and coming out and trying to say there's some hope here. Lots of hope. A lot of hope.
And, you know, divorce is never easy. It's never free from complication, whether you instigated the separation or you weren't part of that decision. So over the next 12 weeks, we'll be walking you through some steps that could really help you or your friend get back on your feet when life becomes the one that you hadn't planned. We'll be addressing issues with the experts about dealing with divorce, guiding your children through separation and relaunching yourself into the working, dating, single and parent world. Yeah, I can't wait to hear about your dating world, girl. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's a minefield out there, baby. (laughs) On the show today, what's the difference between a healthy and toxic relationship and how do you know when your relationship's really done? And importantly, how do you look after yourself during this time? We'll be joined by psychologist Jackie Manning and the CEO of Relationships Australia, Elizabeth Shaw. But first, Cass, we need to talk about Plan B. You've been telling me about this book for weeks. I've been trying to ignore you, but I'm finally made to listen now. So just tell, <laughs> tell me about the book. I finally what, got you. I got your attention. <laughs> like, what, what's the book about? What did you get from it? Cheryl Sandberg, who's the CEO of Facebook, she wrote a book called Option B. Her husband suddenly died. They were on holiday. And he had, a, you know, a, an accident and he passed away. So she had to return from holidays back to the kids without her husband. Oh, my goodness. And, yes, it's not divorce, but it's still what she goes into in option B is going through the stages of dealing with something that has suddenly ended and how you can help someone else going through it. So it, it really does relate to all aspects of life. Yes, any trauma needs to be grieved. And divorce is a trauma. It's something that you have to go through a process of. Yeah. What were the main findings from the book? Well, some of the things that she really got into in the beginning were how productivity of someone grieving affects companies and businesses all over. You you can't underestimate that someone going through grief has to go through a process and that if they've had a trauma, you can't limit that amount of grief by saying, well, divorce is is number two on the list, whereas the death of a spouse is the number one biggest trauma. They're pretty close. Mm. So what it what it said to me was that, yes, there are steps to go through. There's also a grieving process that you have to go through, which I think are different, like steps that, you know, you, you might be told you've got to do X, Y and Z, but your own grief process is your own. What she's saying is that at first you really struggle to be part of your world again. I mean, everything's changed. You go to work and everyone else is the same, but you're not. Or, you know, you go to the school gate and everyone else is the same, but you're not. And what your children are going through might not be the same either. So the steps that she sort of talks you through with the help of, you know, a friend who's a psychologist that helps her with the book um, is, is making sure that the steps you're taking are along the road of the, you know, she starts off with the three Ps, which is kind of personalising, pervasiveness and permanence. And that's, you know, the personalising a trauma, it wasn't in your control. So there's no point trying to personalise and say, what, what is Why it doing me? to me? Kind Why me? Yeah. What, what am I going to do here? Why did it happen? Was I at fault? Did I not do this? Did I not do that? And then pervasiveness, which is being present in life. So getting on with life, but actually being present there rather than completely checking out, you know, all you're thinking about is the the tragedy that's happened. And these, you know, it's easier said than done, but she gives you tips on how to get through this. And then the permanence of learning to live with that as your new 
reality. Well, yeah, your new reality. Yeah. And then finding the joy. And then finding the joy. I love that. Yeah. I will have to share that book in, in our show notes because that sounds like a, a beautiful book. Yeah, I think so. I'm still reading. But before we can get to the joy, let's talk about the difference between a healthy and toxic relationship and how do we know when to walk away? We're joined by Elizabeth Shaw, a clinical and counselling psychologist with a background in relationships. Elizabeth is the CEO of Relationships Australia, a not-for-profit organisation that provides relationship support services to enhance human and family relationships and she joins us now. So Elizabeth, we talk a lot about red flags in a relationship. When people come to see you, is it really obvious whether or not their relationship is healthy or toxic? There are definitely some signs that a relationship has some entrenched negative patterns that are going to be more stuck to shift. Absolutely, it's obvious. Whether I would call it toxic, I think certainly we know when a relationship's in trouble. What does a healthy relationship look like to you? Because um, surely all relationships aren't identical. Look, that's right. And it's interesting to consider what a healthy relationship does mean because there's been fashions over time that a healthy relationship means you have to have almost zero conflict, for example, or you have to have an enormous amount in common or um, sometimes there's things said like opposites attract. And I think in the end what we know about a good relationship is that it's diverse, it's different for every couple, and that it's much more about whether you have the skills to navigate the things that life throws at you, or you can get through difficult conversations without harm. Those are the sorts of things that will tell you that you're in a healthy relationship more than any other factor. I've heard a really great saying, which I love, it's not about how much you argue, it's about how you argue. That's exactly right. And one of the other things I love, Elizabeth, uh, is the the Gottman's four horsemen of the apocalypse. If there's these four stages that your relationship has hit, so it's your criticism, defensiveness, contempt and stonewalling. When you're sort of at those four peaks in a relationship, that's when you know you're really in trouble. Look, that's right. If you if you repetitively use any of those things and, and you've listed them in order of severity so people don't always know that stonewalling is really what we can know as the silent treatment. So all of those four things we might all do and be um, from time to time. But if you're repetitively using any of those things, then yes, they are four very strong warning signs that your relationship can, you know, is in some trouble. Elizabeth, is it also the case, which I've always believed, is that once something's said out loud, you have to remember you can't really take it back? Well, I think it's true that um, that once it's there, depending what it is, then it, it can be hard to get past it. And that's where the conversation after that is important because you can forgive comments if you know that your partner is not generally like that, doesn't generally say that sort of thing, or there is a context that you can ultimately come to grips with. Uh, you know, so certainly context uh, helps and how you talk about it afterwards. But if you regularly get to an ugly moment where things are said, even if apologies happen afterwards and discussions happen, if you just repetitively get to a nasty point in a relationship, then it's it's actually not going to help 
to just apologise and smooth things over because that's not real repair. That's actually just a Band-Aid. Do you think that it's ever too late? If you're in that stage, do you, when people come to see you, do you sort of think oh, in your mind, oh, that's not, not going to go anywhere? How do you, how do you look, tell the difference? Yeah. Look, you mentioned John Gottman and he's, he's wrestled with this too. I think most of us who've been in the field a long time do that ultimately we have a lot of tools in our kit bag so we can uh, look at skill building, we can look at understanding patterns of behaviour and emotional responsiveness. So in the end, for me, it becomes a question of why do the work? Because I, I can work through any number of things, but for me, the couple has to wrestle with the question, what reason do we have to do this hard work? And usually it does come back to a couple who are still able to say, this relationship's where I want to be. We're in a huge amount of trouble, but, you know, I still love this person. We have a history that matters to me. We have foundations. We have strengths that we can draw on. So a couple that has some genuine reason to do it, not something like we should stay together for the kids or I've got nowhere else to go, but but much more, look, this is a mess, but I've got something to hang my hat on, which is a, a reason to get through the tough work. So where I see that one person at least you know, is is probably really wavering about uh, whether they care enough in the end. Then, then for me, I can I can have any number of sessions and offer offer any number of skills. But um, and in fact, sometimes I do work with couples that can say, "Look, we've done a lot of work. We actually have made some changes, but we don't feel any better about each other." And that probably tells us that something else is going on. And sometimes, what I say to people is, if you know in your gut that you really shouldn't be here, that sometimes doing any work on the relationship can almost be unkind because if the other person has hope and you know that it's really not where you're going to be, then then calling it that my feelings have changed can be much more honest and accountable than um, engaging in work where inevitably you're going to talk about complaints and I wish you were this and I wish you were that. That can be quite painful if you're going to go anyway. Um, yeah. and, and yet it's very hard, I think, for someone to call it as my feelings have changed. People have to be very brave to own that. Often people who are distressed and feeling guilty want to implicate their partner and want to say, well, you've done this and that. And maybe they have, but maybe in the end it's not really about those things. That's not really why you're going. Elizabeth, in your experience with your expertise, when should a couple seek counselling? So when when a couple is saying that something has happened for a period of time that they notice. Now, in putting it that way, there's always bad days or a bad week or uh, whatever it is where couples are dismissing it and saying, oh, this is a funny patch. But where they're saying, you know what, we always get stuck in this conversation. We've been distant for a while that now worries us. We haven't had sex for a while. Those sorts of things where they're knowing that they're not in their normal rhythm going to get past it, then it's quite critical at times to seek help. And an awful lot of couples that I see say, gee, we wish we'd come earlier because um, instead of worrying that counselling is the kiss of death or the sort of um, the final indictment that we're in trouble, uh, what they find is they go out even after the first session relieved saying, you know what, this is hopeful, there's some really basic things we could do to feel better. Um, and so when you're starting to notice that stuck patch, 
to see counselling as a resource, not as a negative sign, but as a resource to get you out of a loop because any couple that's been together develops habits of practice and often need somebody outside of them to just observe what's going on and see where the circuit breakers could happen or with a tweak or a new skill, they could mobilise themselves quite quickly with even a few sessions Mm. and move on. Can it be the case that if the counselling actually doesn't save the relationship, that it does improve the chances of there being a, a better better conclusion to it? Look, absolutely, because if you separate, if you, if you lacked skills in the relationship, they're not going to get any better after that. So I think, um, I think doing whatever work you can to understand what's happened, come to peace with why the relationship needs to end, um, have some time to wrestle with that together. What do we commonly understand? You may end up with two very different versions of why the relationship ends. I often say to couples, you know, you, you can't be held back by your, your partner's version of that because everybody invents their own sort of view of it. Um, but what you can do is feel more resolved as to why it ended, have more information about why it ended. And that that certainly is very helpful in being able to move forward. Because I think if you're stuck in the, I really don't understand this and I just feel, you know, agony and mystery about it, that takes much longer to get your head around. And what you really need to be doing is saying, particularly if you've got children, how are we going to do this productively and I encourage people to do no more harm. You know, what what can you do to really respect uh, what you've meant to each other, what you've been to each other, the history you've shared, which is a big part of your life? Rather than Um, expending energy on worrying about what, what caused it. Well, look, that's that's right. You'll always reflect on that and as the years pass, you get more and more perspective on that. But I think initially, um, especially because usually one person wants it to end more than the other, it's much less common that two people realise it's done. So with one person wanting to... Um, to end it, the other person is playing catch up for a while. And to be able to help your partner um, understand and come to peace with it is hugely beneficial for both of you going forward. You know, I say to people, if you end this relationship, you really want to feel like you've been thorough. You know, you've, you've thoroughly engaged with each other and loved each other and been together. You know, you want to be able to feel that we really gave it a red hot go. And the only way to do that is really to engage your partner in your concerns. The other thing is that if you feel like there's a good chance that you'll be leaving, unless it changes, then I think it's a kindness to your partner to bring them on that journey with you. Mm. Um, Whereas I do see people worry and worry and worry internally and in fact keep trying to come up with things themselves as if that's going to solely change it. And then the partner just gets a, a horrible shock and is playing catch up. Well, we could try this and we could try that. And the person's kind of too far gone in their thinking. So it's for two reasons then. One is to double check, is it true we can't turn this around? You can only know that with your partner. And the other thing is bring them on the journey with you. It's, mm. a, kinder, it's a kinder thing to do. Yeah, that ending conversation is really one that, that uh, is quite important. Yes. Elizabeth, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate all the advice you've given and some. I, I'm sure it gives people an, an idea of what they can do to try and save a marriage or what can happen if they decide to leave a relationship and how they can make that work the best for everyone. Thank you. Cass, 
so many pearlers from Elizabeth. It's actually a shame that everyone doesn't separate successfully because there is there is an organisation out there focused on helping us do that and so yes. many marriages don't. I know, but Cass, usually it's one party that is the reason that, you know, yes. that yeah. there's not successful separations. Yeah. The other thing I also wanted to bring up was I know that access to therapy is not available to everyone it's expensive what I actually did when I was having a really awful time in my marriage I went to my GP and requested a mental health plan Mm. Um, and because relationship stress is such a huge impact on your health and mental health I was able to get 10 sessions at a very very reduced rate so that's I think something that not everyone knows about that you can have access through your GP Mm. to uh, really subsidised mental health care. And my understanding is Relationships Australia do offer, you know, instances where they assist for a very minimal, if anything. So that that's worth looking yeah, into with them as well. There's resources there yeah. and we'll share those links in, in the show notes for people as well. There are so many things at play when a relationship ends and so many emotions And, you know, chances are things were said that uh, are really hurtful and there's a lot of pain and and grief. So how do you look after yourself? I think this is a really important topic, Annalise, because things are said or, you know, written or texted or emailed or however you have that relationship with someone who was once a spouse and is no longer. I think this is a really important topic for us to address because you can't take all of it to heart. You are going through pain and clearly, you know, there are two parties and Mm. they're probably going through some sort of pain as well. And you have to remember that, you know, it's not that personal as you think it is. It yeah. becomes, a you know, a, a time when you're not really being run by your brain, you're being run by your emotions a little bit. Yeah. And, you know, often when we're drowning, we pull down others. That's just a natural human reaction, isn't it? Absolutely. And you also have to remember that that person is no longer your spouse. And so the way you used to, you know, communicate with them or converse with them, which, you know, on, on some levels was very personal and others, you know, like you say, you can often treat those closest to you the worst. You know, you can say things that you would never be able to say to someone else like, oh, you know, that really, you know, that really bothers me. You might not say that. You might say something else. <laughs> so I think it's really important to to look at this issue and think, you know, how am I doing? Might not be just on, you know, how are you going physically and mentally? It might be how am I going with the new role that I'm in? And am I being um, respectful enough of the fact that I'm no longer in the position that you were in with that person? Yeah. Well, Jackie Manning is a highly experienced psychologist who works intuitively to help people resolve issues in their life and work through their emotional pain. She's at Darling Health in Sydney and she joins us now to talk about how you can look after yourself when you have to work out what your plan B is. Jackie, when someone comes to see you and tells you that they're going through a divorce, what's the first piece of advice that you give to them? Well, it would depend on the person, but in general, just to express some of their pain, you know, to talk to me, that's their space to be completely honest and open. And oftentimes people hold back, even in the therapy space. So to really, and so Firstly, to look at them and then to really look at the support they've got around them and identify 
it might not be family. A lot of people are in Sydney or in cities without family networks mm. around, but to really explore who the, who is there because often that despondency and pain can lead you to think you're all alone. And well, the person that you spoke to all the time that's is, the, right. is the person you've now separated from. Yeah, and they were your support network. So it is a huge shift but to to allow for space that this can be, you, you will get through this, this is something that um, you just have to look for people around you, learning to reach out, learning to ask for help. We are in the therapy space, I often do go back to parental relationships and um, trauma bonds, if you like, that people might have grown up with and so exploring some of that because that's often where relationship issues come from. Like I, I believe that people come together in relationships partly to heal some of that childhood wounding that we've all had, even no matter how nice our parents were. Mm. We couldn't get 100% of our needs met 100% of the time. And so, and some people obviously have quite difficult childhoods. So what is it? Why were you attracted to that person? Looking at the things they got out of the relationship, the things that weren't ideal so that they can look to heal from that and grieve for that little person and the person in front of me. When I say little person, I mean the little person inside the inner of them. Child. Mm. Yeah. Um, and what they're currently dealing with and encouraging them to grieve is a really important step yeah. because without that you're not really fully able to pass through it, I don't think. One of the big things I I feel is that people often say, you know, are you o- over them? Yes, I'm over them. Mm. I'm over my ex-husband. But it's about going through the grief of going through a divorce. Mm. Like to, going through a divorce is really stressful. Mm, so good. that's something to grieve once that's all gone through. You're actually grieving the process of what you've gone through, the breakdown of a marriage and then the, the, the process of a divorce. That's something to actually go, oh, wow, oh, I'm it through is. that. And it's little things like, do I, can I still wear my wedding rings? I like that piece of jewelry. Mm. Oh, what can I wear? You know, just so, sometimes those little things can be upsetting. And I think the other thing to, to remember is that both parties do grieve. So I have a, a friend who made the choice to leave his marriage and has a new partner and is very happy, but he still experiences quite deep grief now and that's a couple of years down the track. So it's hard to imagine when you're the person being left that the person leaving you will also have feelings. But it's it's so deep. You Presumably if you've been together for a while, for a long time and perhaps had children as well, those bonds are, are thick and so the loss of that affects both parties even if it doesn't seem so on the surface. Do you have expectations that people should pass through that grief at any certain period of time? No, it's so personal and it's so dependent on other things they've experienced and I think that's something, I think our culture encourages us, grief of many kinds, whether it's death, loss, you know, separation, to kind of quickly get back on their feet. But the thing with grief is it's not linear, it's not time-based. You can be hit three years later with emotions as big as the ones you experienced in the beginning and that's normal that's actually Mm. the pathway of grief often liken it to waves you know sometimes Mm. the waves will feel like big tidal waves that you feel like you're really drowning and other times they'll be gentle and sometimes you can have a whole mix in the same day and so to really know that there's a physiological experience of grief as well so sometimes people think they're going crazy or they're you know, really sick or something like that. And I always encourage people to get checked out if they do have physical um, symptoms. But 
grief can do that to your body and mm. so it might give you chest pains or really bad stomach or certain, you know, stop you sleeping. There's a lot of physiological experiences people go through and that's actually normal. It's not to be pathologised because grief is grief and if the bond was deep, you're going to feel it more. If you lose someone through death that you really loved, you're going to feel it more. If it's someone, if it's just an acquaintance, you will feel sadness but it won't be so deep. And over this process, your life is still going on. For example, then my dad passed away mm. not long after my separation divorce. So I guess that then adds to your grief and there's other yeah. things that you're dealing with. Absolutely. It's a real shift of of what you've known to be secure and familiar has suddenly changed. Mm. That doesn't mean you won't feel secure in your life again, but just right in that moment you've got mm. a lot of pain. Mm. And so to reach out for help through friends, family, seeing someone like me can sound like a scary prospect for people, but it's really healthy thing to do if people – or even talking to their GP as a good start. A lot of GPs are – are more trained now in listening to people's emotional needs as well. So to not be frightened of doing that or thinking there's something wrong with you if, if that's what you feel like you need to do, it's a more proactive kind of step to take. What are some tools and techniques that people can use throughout that grief process, that really sort of traumatic period? What are your sort of top survival tips? Take your time, take things slowly. Try and identify with people what they might find soothing at other times in their life too so some people really love exercise or um, meditation or um, having a hot bath just simple things so you don't have to do anything too complex so self-care and self-reflect yes yes absolutely thanks so much for coming in jackie thank you jackie Every week on the show, we're going to be sharing a divorce story from someone who's come out the other side or going through a separation. And today's divorce story is from Erin. Now, Erin decided to end her marriage uh, 10 years ago and after 11 years of being together. Erin, thanks so much for sharing your divorce story with us. That's okay. So, 10 years ago, it's it's a long time ago now, but thinking back to that time in the lead up, what were some of the decisions and, and reasons leading up to that decision to end your marriage? Uh, look, I think there's a lot over time, you know, you gradually start to feel distance from them and, you know, it's quite scary to sort of think that this might not be what you want anymore. So I guess it's easily just to get distracted with day-to-day life. But I guess one of the big factors was that we were looking um, – he was quite keen to start a family and I sort of was very hesitant um, and then we went to go do IVF and the doctor was pretty much like, yep, you can start tomorrow. And then I just thought, well, I don't want a baby with my husband and, you know, that's an issue and something I thought I really need to address. That's a really big red flag. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. What were some of the other red flags? I think just starting – to feel distant, like not wanting to sort of, I guess, spend as much time with them, not being as sexually attracted to them um, and just realising that maybe the life that you had wasn't really what you wanted for yourself. And I think that was probably the main thing. I thought this isn't actually what I, where I wanted to be or what I expected my life to be. Yeah. And I could also see um, where exactly where my, my life would be in 60 years' time because, I, you know, I sort of knew what he was about and he was a creature of habit and what he wanted and I thought this isn't what I want for the rest of my life. 
What do you think the difference is? Because I know now you're in a long-term relationship. You've since had young kids with someone which anyone who's been through that knows that pushes any relationship to the boundaries. What, what are sort of the differences between having, you know, a rough time in a relationship compared to where you were at that point where you just knew you were done? I think having a rough time, you know, and you're definitely right, like when you've got young kids and, you know, those factors and money and everything else, like there's fights and you're angry at each other and um, you're frustrated but I think there's still, at the end of the day, even if there is fights and you're angry and whatever, there's still a connection whether it be emotional or physical. But I think when you sort of feel like, you know, your relationship's ending, it's almost like there's disinterest. So it's not even that anger or passion or frustration at them for doing whatever or not doing whatever but it's just total lack of, I guess, care or interest and that's when you sort of know that you've, I guess, left the marriage, so to speak, mentally. Erin, did you go down the marriage counselling route? And if, if so, why or why not? We did. And um, I think that you almost have to do it when you're married. I think they um, sort of recommend it before you enter into a separation, because like, we did a formal separation agreement. But we did it, but also, <laughs> he hates it. Like, you know, he was not um, impressed by it because sort of when we went there and we explained our cases and what we want and she sort of said, well, I, I think that you just both just want separate things and are on separate paths. So she sort of could see that the end was nigh and I think that that didn't impress him very much at all. Did mm. she help you in sort of making sure it was a better ending, do you think, though, because she pointed out that, yes, probably you are at the end, this is my advice? Not really. I think she was just sort of like, well, you know, I think you understand what's going on and you, you have to action it accordingly. I, I don't know if I was getting independent counselling and I think that helped me and I think he should have had independent counselling and he didn't and he really should have. But in terms of us as a whole, no, I don't know if she actually sort of gave us any pointers, for lack of a better term. And Erin, what was the reaction like from family and friends, you know, seeing as it was your decision to to end the relationship did yeah. you feel a sense of judgment or was, uh, were yes. there support <laughs> no it wasn't good <laughs> no um he's from a very close-knit um community and so a lot of the friends and you know a lot of them probably thought we were a wonderful couple because it's easy just to maintain that um appearance for a long time and so a lot of people were quite shocked and um very surprised and couldn't understand why I would you know walk away from such a fabulous life and a fabulous man and my family thought that as well I used to joke that they'd have a shrine to him in my house when you know I walked in <laughs> they loaded the shrine um so it took a long time for them to get their head around it yeah, and, you know, I lost a lot of friends, I think, along the way, but, you know, oh, were they really friends in the first place? Definitely not. <laughs> not no. team Erin. I'm also wondering, Erin, no. at the moment, if you knew then what you know now, are there any regrets or anything you would have done differently? Yeah, I would have um, spoken up a lot earlier and been a lot honest about what I wanted much earlier in the marriage when um, we started to do things that sort of he wanted to do in terms of settling down, you know, and fulfilling his dream. I would have spoken up a lot sooner and said, oh, this isn't actually what I want, but I just went along with it. And also when I was having serious doubts and very unhappy, I would have spoken up a lot sooner instead of dragging it on because ultimately it just caused far more pain for both of us in particular for him, it was sort of cruel almost, I think, how long I sort of dragged it along because I didn't have the courage to walk away. 
Oh, su- such a tough choice, isn't it? And, mm. you know, I've been thinking about that that nice guy thing. You know, when you leave a relationship and the other guy is nice and people really like them, I think yeah. that's really hard because everyone's like, oh, why would you do that? He's so great. Um, that must yeah, have been really definitely. tough for you. Yeah, definitely. Um, and, you know, I didn't really have much of a plan B, so I was a bit of a gypsy going from place to place. So I don't think – I don't recommend that either because that doesn't, <laughs> doesn't help your emotional well-being. Um, yeah, no, definitely you're right. What sort of guilt did you have or how oh. long was that guilt oh. because you had dragged it on? <laughs> so much guilt, like debilitating guilt that um, – probably stopped me from being happy like definitely stopped me from being happy and I know my partner now um I remember he said to me because you know he copped so much of my guilt and angst um and when my you know ex-husband has now moved on and remarried and got his own family and when that finally happened um, my now partner said to me oh now you can finally be happy um because he um knew that I was just so Concerned that he wasn't happy and that I'd ruined his life, and um, yeah, that guilt—it kills a killer. It never—it takes a long time to go away. Erin, thank you so much for sharing your divorce story with us. We really All appreciate, uh, yeah, bearing your soul with us, and <laughs> um, and and so I'm so happy for you that you're in a new relationship and that you're in a great place. Yeah, very good. Thank you. Thanks, Erin. Cass, one of the things that sprung to mind while we were chatting with Erin and hearing her divorce story was when she said that she just didn't care anymore and she just checked out. And it made me think of a conversation I'd had with a girlfriend and she was going through it and she said, you know what, if he cheated on me, I actually wouldn't care. Yeah, I've had a friend say that to me as well. It's interesting to me because she clearly checked out and she didn't care about the little niggly things or even big things that he did because she was looking for an excuse to leave, which is what they often talk about. You know, you're looking for an excuse or someone's looking for an excuse to be able to walk away, to end the marriage, when really what they want is to end the marriage and they shouldn't have to find more reasons to do it. It's enough that that's what they want. So it was interesting to hear her say that because then she had so much guilt that yeah. was almost debilitating after doing it. So she felt more emotion toward her husband after she left him than she was feeling at the end of the marriage. Yeah. And I've, I've had an, another girlfriend say it's like that feeling when you know you finish having kids, it's the same. In, when you're in a relationship and you know you're done, you're done. And I think that's the difference, isn't it, between whether you walk away or not, really. Yeah, and I think, you know, we will cover in these podcasts that it's very important, as talking to Erin showed us, it's probably really important to have that conversation. Like, you will have a better result by talking about it together. You've invested so much time already. Why not invest the time to wrap it up with a nice little bow, if you can, and, you know, keep it as a solid, wonderful story. My parents were friends until the day my dad died. They were separated from their early 40s. So for 30 years, they were, you know, really great friends. My mum looked after my little sister, who was um, not not my mum's daughter, you know, would help assist with babysitting and all of it. They were at Christmas. You know, there is a way to do it. It doesn't have to be that perfect story that my parents had, but there's, you know, there's a lot in between the, yeah. the, the animosity and that, that point. There's a big gap there that hopefully we can help people find or strive for. Next week on Divorce Story, the early days. 
how to pick yourself up off the floor. And Cass, you've been there. Oh friend. yeah, fetal position. Let's talk about how to get yourself out of fetal position and how important it is that A, you do it and B, you've got a support network to help you. So you don't miss out on any episodes, make sure you hit subscribe. And if you liked what you heard, then please feel free to rate us and leave a review. If you want to hear more from us, follow us on socials at Cass Thorburn and at Annalise Dent. And Divorce Story is produced by me, Annalise Dent. And me, Cass Thorburn. The executive producer is Eliza Ratliff. If you have any questions or feedback for us, email podcast at pacificmags.com.au. Dot au.